Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Legend of Portalcast, a podcast dedicated to Avatar The Last Airbender, The Legend of Korra, and all things Avatar. Welcome, everybody. I'm Colin. I'm your main host, and joining me tonight is Daniel. Hello. It's good to have you back. (laughs) It's good to be back. Yes. Works crazy. (laughs) Yes. Truth and truth. Um, so I hope you guys are all doing well. I hope you're all taking care of yourselves as we're heading into the spring. My goodness, finally. I don't know about you guys, but weather's starting to warm up. I can actually open windows now. It's a delightful feeling. <laughs> Though we did get like snow yesterday, which was just kind of wild. <laughs> yeah, it's been snowing here for like the last week. Oh my god. I'm tired of it. I'm done. Done. Get out of here. <laughs> Oh my goodness. All right. So guys, uh, welcome back to the show. Um, We are going to be discussing today uh, more of Legend of Korra from book two. Today we're going to be discussing episode 10, A New Spiritual Age. Um, But before we get into that episode discussion, we're going to do a quick little uh, news discussion here. Um, We're going to be kind of uh, talking about uh, an article that came out. Uh, It was actually... Last month in March, uh, when we were originally going to record, we were going to talk about it, but we didn't have a chance to. So we're talking about it now. Um, So this is yes. Uh, So this is from a uh, article from Deadline. Uh, It came out in March eighteenth, twenty twenty one. So almost a it is in a complete month later. Well, we are in April already, and April is almost over. God, where is what is time? What is anything? Time is an illusion. Yes. As is pants. <laughs> um, so this article, uh, the uh, headline for it is Avatar The Last Airbender, Nickelodeon planning multiple animated series and films in franchise expansion. So as we all know, of course, Avatar Studios is the uh, big kind of division that has been designed to create uh, more Avatar The Last Airbender content. With uh, the, of course, original creators, Michael Martino and Brian Konitzko, uh, kind of being the uh, showrunners, lead roles, uh, supervisors of this. Um, so, of course, we are going to be seeing uh, the first project is an animated theatrical film um, that is set to pr- start production later this year. We already kind of knew that. Um, you know, of course, that was the the main thing. But what we did get as some additional information from this article, this is a this is a quote from Brian Robbins. He is the network president of Nickelodeon, um, and this is his quote from the article, saying, "Quote: We are in the early stages of developing and exploring what we are calling an entire Avatar Airbender universe." He said, Mike and Brian are hard at work, and I think that universe will uh, encompass definitely a theatrical film, animation, certainly multiple TV series, and probably multiple films. I think we will be ready very soon to tell the world what is coming first, but we are not there yet because we're in early stages of creative development. So, uh, this is kind of them confirming what we had as our suspicions that this is a way to kind of uh, expand out an avatar uh, style universe though in our discord we did have a very fervent discussion uh, as a, a kind of better name for this instead of just avatar airbender universe because it, I mean let's be honest here that's it, it doesn't quite roll off the tongue yeah 
Yeah, so actually, when we when we first posted this as well, uh, Fran from A Healthy Dose of Fran was like, I'm not a fan of the Avatar Airbender universe, <laughs> which definitely there because it's like, she said, it's already the Avatar universe. Putting Airbender excludes everything else that's already a part of it, which I, I definitely, definitely agree with. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, but the, uh, the, the big question is, is, you know, okay, what would be something that's better um, and one of the ones that I put out there, or I know uh, Fran said uh, an Avatar State Universe, uh, which would be uh, pretty cool. And my personal one that I submitted is the Avatar Cabbage Verse, uh, <laughs> in which you peel back one layer and there's even more. There's always more. <laughs> um, of course, I I had also been making a meal with cabbage that week and I like opened it up. Of course, I can't buy cabbage at the store without having those words just echo in the back of my head. <laughs> right. <laughs> poor, poor cabbage man. Um, yeah, I, I agree. I, I don't, I don't so much like the avatar airbender universe. Cause like Korra wasn't an airbender. She was a waterbender. So what about, what about them? What about the firebenders? Like, <laughs> I, I don't know. I feel like that's, or at least I hope that's just like a working name because they're going off Avatar, the last airbender. Mm-hmm. And so they're just kind of throwing that out there. But yeah, I, I feel hey. like it's, it's, it's trying to like, you know, cash in on like the name recognition. Uh, Cause mm-hmm. you know, I guess more people would know Avatar, the last airbender, <clears throat> Yeah, but you know, I, I, again, it's like, I, 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 I'm with you. I hope they come up with something that's a little bit more creative, a little bit more uh, encompassing that's not just, hey, it's an airbender universe. Like, no, it's there are four nations. And right. if we're really looking at it, there weren't many airbenders in the stories that we told. <laughs> they're they're, uh, they're pretty pretty low on the totem pole. Less than 10. Concerned. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Yeah. Maybe like the the Bendyverse. Like Ooh, Bendyverse. Very nice. So, uh, yeah, we would love to hear your thoughts as well. Of course, a lot of this discussion came from our uh, Discord, which you can find a link in our show notes. Be able to join us in that discussion. Uh, share your own theories as to what you think this uh, new universe should be called. If you think uh, this is kind of a good direction that they're going to be moving in and what you are most excited uh, to see in terms of a show, a movie, uh, and other types of media that you would love to see them uh, be able to show us to expand this universe. Um, But that is going to conclude our little news uh, section there. So without any further ado, we're going to go ahead and hop into our discussion of Korra Season 2, Episode 10, A New Spiritual Age. Previously... In our the last episode uh, that we discussed, episode nine, the guide was all about Cora returning to Tenzin and the family, uh, telling them what she discovered from her visions of Avatar One, the story of harmonic convergence, and the age-old conflict between Rava and Vatu, and how that's about to all come to a head, thanks to Unalak being. A real, real rude dude. And as they quickly determined and came up with a plan, going in through the spirit world and closing the portal from there would be their best shot instead of having to 
bypass all of the security forces that Unalak had set up at the Southern Pole. So, after Tenzin having to put a little bit of his ego aside, uh, decided to let Jinora accompany Korra into the spirit world as they both meditated and entered as Tenzin, Kaya, and Bumi were left waiting. So that's where we open up our episode. As Tenzin is hanging out there, he is uh, very worried, very concerned, which I, I gotta say, this is like my first Korra episode returning back uh, in a little bit, especially since I started watching uh, the new uh, Amazon Prime show Invincible, uh, which J.K. Simmons also voices in, but he plays a very different character in that. So it was kind of a little bit of a whiplash to go from like that character to very sweet Tenzin, where he plays a little bit more of like a sociopathic like superhero. (laughs) So it was like definitely a little, but then I was like, oh, it's like a comforting salve as uh, Tenzin was just like very genuinely concerned about his daughter. (laughs) Yeah, he's a good dad deep down, I think. Yes, yes. Um, so, you know, Tenzin is worried because, of course, you know, he's sending his daughter into the spirit world um, all alone. And, you know, he says they won't have their bending. They'll be defenseless. And <laughs> immediately Boomy takes great offense to that, saying that he is, uh, you know, I haven't had my bending. And I'm quite, uh, you know, <laughs> and Tenzin's just like... call myself defenseless. <laughs> well, Tenzin's like, well, you have... Um, and Kaya's just like, uh, positive attitude. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I love Boomy's response. And he's like, I was going to say acute intellect and cat-like reflexes. <laughs> yeah. Which like, I, I don't know that little scene, like as short and insignificant as it was. And like, even aside from the fact that they just played it for comedic effect with Boomy, like, I feel like that's a really deep statement, though, because, like, kind of goes back to the first season and and proves kind of what, uh, like, the equalists were actually trying to do. Because mm, here yeah. you have like this group of siblings who should know each other really well, but it's it's so clear that the two that are benders really think less of Boomy's capabilities because he's not a bender like even just like without meaning to it just happens they're dismissive and um you know marginalize his ability to survive in the world because he's not a bender and and he has to you know jump to his defense and point out that he does have these possibly somewhat uh uh, exaggerated, but <laughs> you know he he is capable of doing things, and he's not just a waste of space. Like, yeah, definitely. I mean, it, it's it it's it's interesting because you know one of the one of the big uh, you know critiques that sometimes people have about um, you know Korra as a whole is that you know because uh, the way that it was produced and because they thought they were only going to have the first season, they kind of leave. 
are left kind of like the Amon storyline behind because, of course, it concluded with Amon dying. And, you know, but it's this idea that they will still have these nods like that in this moment to show that there is still this, you know, deep seated divide between benders and non-benders. And even and I love what you said, that it is even evident in this family that should, you know, have that sense of equality and uh, connectivity, but I, I think it's great to show that there is this division between them, um, because yeah. I think that it just shows that, like, you know, sometimes that that can happen between siblings, but it's this is their time to be able to reconnect and to be able to, you know, have the events of what's happening now uh, to give them that chance to bridge that gap and to come together and get to understand each other a little bit better. So. As the scene ends, we see Jenora and Korra in the spirit world. It is beautiful as we see them standing amidst this beautiful field, this towering mushroom, uh, beautiful little uh, like butterflies made of like pink, almost jewels, it looks like. And Jenora is enraptured, but Korra tells her to be careful. Um, you can definitely see the two sides of it, which I think is very important to the trajectory of this episode and the way that it kind of goes about. Because Korra immediately is very defensive and very concerned and is not, uh, you know, as as delighted. I mean, this is also Korra's first time going into the spirit world, but... I think that there's a lot too that she, after especially seeing what Juan went through and like everything that he experienced with spirits, I can understand why she's like definitely a little bit concerned and a little tentative because after what she saw him experience, I would be a little scared too, if I'm being honest. Yeah. <laughs> well, and plus she's spent, you know, how long with Tenzin, like, coaching her about the spirit world and mm. war <clears throat> excuse me warning her of like you know all the dangers and, and the the darkness lurking behind every corner and you have to be careful and so she's she's coming into this situation already you know expecting to be attacked every time she turns around mm. absolutely whereas Jinora's had this more uh kind of natural neutral and positive introduction to the spirits in the material plane basically mm-hmm. yeah definitely. <laughs> you know where, where she's been interacting with them just as they come and go and so she has this much lighter uh positive interpretation of what the spirits are and how they exist and you know, it's it's a really interesting juxtaposition which they lean on earlier or later in the episode yeah definitely um, so we see that Janora runs off to chase this butterfly and Cora, uh, begins to kind of like go after her, <laughs> but then <laughs> a, uh, like meerkat type of spirit pops up out of the ground and lets her know that she is trespassing in a residential neighborhood hmm. and asking her, you know, who, who even are you? And she goes, well, I am the avatar. <laughs> I love we get this one meerkat. Like another one pops up, sniffs at her feet and he goes, I'm not impressed. <laughs> right. 
And immediately, again, she's already on the defensive. They all, like, start, like, harassing her. And then she, feeling overwhelmed, tries to bend at them. And I love that, of course, she can't bend because, as we know, Mm. when you enter the spirit world uh, through this way, you cannot bend on the other side. Um, And as she does this, I love that the fear cats are like, did you see that? She just tried to offended us <laughs> how dare she <laughs> just so deeply offended if you've ever dealt with the nosy neighbors or like a homeowners association <laughs> that was a very familiar scene <laughs> if only we had bending to deal with them <laughs> <laughs> right <laughs> um you know and it's uh, of course what starts off as a very like kind of humorous scene begins to turn a little bit more concerning as suddenly more and more of these meerkats pop up out of the ground and begin to swirl around her again, begin to kind of like attack her as the spirit goo begins to cover her. And she calls out for Janora. And as Janora begins to run back, she calls out to her and says, Corey, your energy is only making it worse. And this is kind of the first nod that we get in terms of the effect that Cora's personality in the way that she is viewing the world is beginning to affect and impact uh, her surroundings and what is happening to her, um, which as this happens, uh, you know, the whirlwind begins to swirl around in both Janora and Cora, then fall into the ground. Uh, they enter an underwater realm where they are trapped underneath a strange layer, which I, I'm i sure you remember because we were the ones who uh, like <laughs> spent all of those hours late into the night trying to fake, decipher the meaning of nightmares and daydreams. But it reminded uh-huh. me of that vision that uh, <laughs> Aang had during that nightmare where he's trapped under the ice and he like is looking at Zuko who's standing above it on the other side. Yep. Um, but but then they are consumed by a giant swimming spirit and then from there fall into a swirling vortex that defies space and logic it's a river that bends around and descends deeper into the unknown um i i mean this sequence alone is just so wild It, it is just like such a um and we'll kind of get into this with our discussion point here but it is so unique and terrifying uh, with how quickly this spirals out of control. Yeah, it's it's very well. Again, it it speaks, I think, a lot to you know Korra's interpretation of the world and how she approaches being the Avatar. Like to her, it's it's all you know drama and aggression and conflict, and you know she has to be the one controlling point, but. As she's falling, literally into chaos, and you know, like you said, things that defy our understanding of space and time. Like she has to realize that she has zero control, and her, you know, aggressive, headstrong kind of nature isn't exactly helping anything ever. <laughs> <laughs> It does help some things, but it does get her into more trouble I than mean, sometimes it's worth. <laughs> I'd, I'd give you that it solves some problems, but I wouldn't say that it helps things. 
Um, so as they kind of descend deeper in, we see that Korra ends up in a dark wood surrounded by these just creepy looking spirits everywhere. Uh, she is just kind of running around feeling disoriented. The camera is panning around her. And as she spins around, she suddenly turns into little Korra. The Korra that we saw at the very beginning of this series when we first see her bust through the wall and say that <laughs> she is the Avatar and we got to deal with it. <laughs> it's it's such little, a cute little, baby little it's such a cute little toddler design because she just like she's got that little belly where it's just yep. like it's poking out a little bit oh my god it's so cute <laughs> um whereas Korra is in these creepy woods Jidora ends up in a very peaceful grassy meadow <laughs> and we kind of see almost like as the camera just pans to the side we go from that wood over to where Jinora is in this uh, very tranquil uh, field. And then we see as she is kind of lost looking for Korra, Furryfoot, uh, the spirit, one of the many spirits that has, she had befriended in the material plane, comes to her rescue <laughs> in a much larger form. It's just like, yeah. it's just a giant, like, oh my God, it's just so cute. And immediately they give each other a hug and then fly off together uh, to see more of the spirit world and hopefully find Korra. And as they continue to fly on, we see that they discover none other than Wan Shitong's library, submerged upside down back in the spirit world. Um, so, I'm so happy to see that library. Oh, it's so I good. I love that place. <laughs> so uh, just uh, just a few, few points of discussion to kind of dive into here. First uh, is... You know, Tenzin's worries, Boomy's reassurance, this balance that we have between them, Janora and Korra's first experiences. And then also I want to discuss the way that the spirit world is portrayed in Korra versus Avatar The Last Airbender. Um, so to start, uh, you know, any more thoughts kind of on the scene between Tenzin and Boomy and Kaya and this kind of balance that they were starting to serve, uh, you know, this kind of sibling uh, differences, but also the uh, Tenzin's anxieties with Boomy's carefree attitude, and then Kaya kind of falling somewhere in the middle. Yeah, um, I, I don't know. I think that I'm. A, I don't know. I'm a little, a little disappointed with how they're doing Kaya in like this couple series of episodes because, like, when she was first showed up and. You know, she and Boomy and Tenzin were all searching the island and trying to find his wayward children. Like, she seems like a very, um, you know, a very strong personality and very, uh, a, kind of a stabilizing presence between the two of them. Mm -hmm. But I, I really feel like here she's just kind of faded into the background a little bit. Like, she doesn't do much. She doesn't say much. She doesn't contribute much of anything. Whereas you have Tenzin on the one extreme of the scale who's, like, freaking out and worrying and... Which is odd for someone who grew up as a monk. Like, you would think that he would be able to more completely just kind of, you know, take a deep breath ground himself and chill out first off and kind of take things one step at a time 
but instead you have him being the one who's nervous and scared and freaking out about everything that's going on and you have boomy on the other hand who is not a bender never trained as a monk you know but he's the one that's like it's fine everything's okay just take a breath (laughs) chill (laughs) wait and see what happens like it's it's almost what you would expect to be a complete role reversal as far as like you know their upbringings and then you have kai in the background just kind of sitting there watching like (laughs) i think that's i think that's a very that's a very valid point um and i think again it it becomes the uh unfortunate side effect of having a story that is moving more rapidly you're not getting as much time uh for kind of not necessarily even filler but just like having more moments to breathe and development yeah exactly yeah so So i I remember when she first was introduced and was interacting with boomy and tenzin i was really excited for her she seemed like a really cool character with a, a ton of potential and i mean maybe she'll become that in a few episodes i don't know but at this point i just like i it's getting to the point as like her as a character i just don't really care like she's there Eh, okay (laughs) yeah and it's and i think it's it's also part of the some of the critiques that folks have about uh this season in general too is that you know we get it's it's very uh in terms of like sometimes like we get some really strong character development but then we also get stuff that it's just like it's so rushed uh kind of going forward and we we talked about this too in our uh beginnings discussion as well that you know sometimes it's just like it can feel like the story goes into hyperdrive because plot comes before emotion sometimes or it comes before genuine character development sometimes we get very strong character development like in the previous episode the guide we get some really interesting character insights but again, it's it's not the same amount of uh, time with these characters that we would traditionally get with Avatar because there is this greater story that has to move forward. Um, and yeah. I, yeah, and it definitely there's pros and cons to it, but I think that's why there's when people will critique Korra and especially when people make sometimes just the unfair comparison between Korra and Avatar, they are separate things, but of course there's naturally going to be sometimes comparisons that Avatar has such strong character development and such strong individual characters and lots of side characters too, that are really well fleshed out. Um, But that's because they have more episodes and more time to be able to focus on them. Whereas Korra, it is a condensed series. It's moving faster and it's got to keep moving. Um, and unfortunately doesn't have time for a lot of that uh, in all those uh, different scenes. Yeah. So, uh, you know, again, this, uh, we see Korra and Jinora's kind of like different experiences I thought was super interesting because, you know, as you were kind of saying, Korra's is definitely indicative of more of her personality and kind of how she sees the world and how that translates into the spirit world. Versus Jinora's like experience is like very carefree and a sense of wonderment um, that is uh, almost innocent in a way, um, but also I think it's like it's it's innocent with a sense of like genuine just curiosity, which I thought mm-hmm. was like a really nice balance between their two perspectives with everything. Yeah, kind of a wonder that she's experiencing the world with. Mm-hmm. Definitely. 
Um, and then the final thing I want to get your thoughts on is just the way that so far we have the spirit world portrayed in this show versus the way that it's portrayed in Avatar The Last Airbender. Of course, we didn't get many scenes in Avatar with the spirit world, but we did get some. And I just wanted to kind of get your thoughts in terms of uh, how they were differently portrayed so far. I don't really remember in great detail a whole lot of uh, The Last Airbender's interpretation of the spirit world. But one thing that has kind of struck me is that there seems to be a kind of a geographic correlation mm. between you know the real world and the spirit world. But it's not, like, not even close to being spatially equivalent, or even uh, makes sense. Because, like, in the the area where uh, Vatu is imprisoned in the the Tree of Eternity or whatever, like, you have the two portals, which we know are at opposite poles of the planet, but in the spirit world, they're there right next to each other. But then you have this whole expanse of uh, land that's, you know, that as the characters explore it is completely outside of that little, mm-hmm. I don't know, UFC arena, basically. <laughs> but, but like, it, it's, it somehow correlates to the rest of the real world as, as they're exploring it and, and we see more of it. So it's it's kind of a strange, like Twilight Zone sort of relation. I feel like, mm-hmm. um, but I I definitely feel like in Korra it's it's a little bit more uh, concrete in a lot of ways than the Spirit World was in the Last Airbender. Because um, like I. And I could be completely misremembering this, but I feel like in The Last Airbender, everything had kind of like a misty, almost like dreamlike quality to it when they were in the spirit world. Um, Mm -hmm. Kind of, you know, softer colors, softer details, things like that. Whereas in Korra, everything is sharp and clear and in focus. And as we see from Jinora's perspective, can be very vibrant and rich and full of you know life and energy and um so that to me is an interesting difference which like i said could be completely fabricated in my own memory i'm not sure but <laughs> it makes sense <laughs> yeah no i i i think that's definitely valid too and i i it's really interesting that you have what we see especially at the end of like book one of avatar the last airbender when ang goes to meditate at the oasis spirit oasis in the north pole and how he ends up confronting ko the face stealer but then he's guided through these very like misty ethereal woods uh with uh hey but it again it's this it is Ang's perspective as well. We don't necessarily see that influence as much, but what I really do like about the way that they're doing it here in Korra is that it is much more of this idea of perspective changing the way everything looks. And it kind of has a little bit of like that Alice in Wonderland feel to it in terms yeah. of just everything uh, changing so rapidly 
Um, her falling through that like river vortex going through feels very uh, fantastical in that sense. As we'll see later on, there's some really crazy kind of like perspective changes, like looking in at one thing and then suddenly you're like f- super far away from someone in the, like a second later. Um, so yeah. I, I think it does some really interesting stuff on that end, which I think is, is very fun because it kind of like they get to take off the limitations of like the real world and reality and kind of just have fun with perspective and do things that normally just don't make sense in a really Mm -hmm. cool way speaking of perspective though something that just occurred to me about the difference um between last airbender and Korra, uh and completely hypothesis but just from a meta information point of view um wouldn't it be interesting if they portrayed it differently intentionally because when ang went into the spirit world you know he had training he knew Mm. the spirits he interacted with them he was aware of what everything was and like very acutely aware that this is the spirit world it's different than my world whereas as Korra is experiencing it, it is all very, you know, present and real with her, and so everything is more concrete and there. Mm. Hmm. Interesting. I like that. Um, yeah. No. I, I think that that's uh, definitely leaves a lot of room for interpretation and discussion as well. Um, which, if you want to join in on that discussion, hit us up on our Discord. So. As we move farther into this episode, we see that Lil Cora gets attacked by a spirit that she swats away and subsequently hurts. Uh, But then she looks after it. It's just a little dragon bird. Um, And she apologizes for hurting it. And then we hear footsteps. And the man, the myth, the legend, Iroh shows up. And we, we begin we begin crying. <laughs> At least I had tears welling up in my eyes. I just love it. As, right. as, as for you, because I know that this is, you know, you're more recently going through Korra now. What, what was that experience like for you seeing Iroh return in this moment? Were you expecting it? Like, what was that? What was that like kind of seeing him emerge out of the woods like that? Uh, I mean... I'd be lying if I said I wasn't a little bit expecting it, but it it was very much a, a very cool uh, kind of impactful reveal. Um, you know, it's it's like the first time that we saw Obi Wan come back as a Force ghost to mm. to lead Luke. Like he's still there, he's still present, he's taking care of the Avatar. You know, he, he's still doing his thing imparting wisdom and tea (laughs) yeah it's it's interesting that you brought that up too because i i found this wonderful meme uh not too long ago that was a comparison between uncle iroh and obi-wan kenobi (laughs) (laughs) nice (laughs) and you know it's it's definitely it's very much falls in the the hero's journey uh (laughs) archetype of the mentor um, definitely has that uh, definitely has that feel to it as well. Um, yeah, very much. 
So Iroh leads Korra and the Dragonbird to a celebration of uh, two frog spirits who are just about to be getting married. And Iroh is brings them to this just like little delightful it's like a little outdoor table all these spirits are gathered around they're feasting they're all happy playing games and uh we see that iroh has Juan's teapot that he uh put rava in and as he uh makes some tea and pours out uh some for cora it says that you can still taste a little light in every cup which i mean of anyone to have that have that teapot like there is no better <laughs> person to have it than uncle iroh so it was just so fitting to see that you mentioned alice in wonderland earlier again <laughs> yes i i feel like they probably read the book before they wrote this whole episode like just to get some inspiration definitely definitely has a little bit of the uh the the mad hatter uh you know tea party uh type of vibes to it in terms of the absurdity of the characters who are there and everything um, yep. Not to mention, you know, we just had this whole like acid trip of a journey, and then we find, you know, the one apparently corporeal creature and leads us into this nice spread of a little tea party and cakes and <laughs> other fantastical creatures. Definitely. <laughs> yeah. So we cut over then to Jinora, who enters Wan Chitang's library. And I love that we get, oh, I could just, I could spend my entire life reading here. And we right. just hear this voice that says, the last human who did that is still here. And we see a dead professor say. Yeah. <laughs> Which is such a morbid but beautifully comedic callback. Because as we remember in Avatar The Last Airbender, we see as Aang and the gang are leaving is Professor Zay is just like, I have to keep looking. It's like he's just so consumed by knowledge and the desire to learn more. It's such a beautiful, like, tragic, like, you know, uh, archetype of the scholar who wants to just learn more at their own expense, uh, you know, even with their life on the line. Um, and then it's kind of a very eloquently points how useless knowledge is without action exactly because i mean who knows the you know the secrets and the you know the keys of the universe that he had discovered but he's dead now so it will never do anyone any good yep exactly (laughs) i do like the uh the spirit coyotes that are Oh, the spirit foxes, the little, uh, yes. The, the uh, librarians. Oh my god, they're so good. Which we get this wonderful scene as Wan Chitang, you know, says, uh, you know, you seem to know your history. Because she recognizes, Janora recognizes Professor Zay. And he goes, you'll know that humans are no longer allowed. But then she's just like, ah, ah, no. I heard that anyone is allowed entry if they bring new knowledge. And uh, he is just like, well, I am Wan Chitang. He knows 10,000 things. And... <laughs> Janora absolutely stunts on him about the radio because he's like, yeah. I know how the radio works. It is a tiny box where a tiny man sings and plays instruments inside of it. And Janora's like, actually, 
sound waves. We do this. And as she's like in the midst of it, one she tongue just cuts her off. And he's just like, well, I did not know that. And then you see him look back towards one of the spirit foxes saying, well, it looks like I have been fed wrong information about the truth of tiny men inside of little foxes. And you see the little spirit fox just like bow its head like in shame as it walks away. Oh, no. That was, it was adorable. I love it. Um, and so Wan Chitang permits Janora to uh, go amidst the library. Um, it, it felt again. It, it felt very much like a D and D moment, as you know, Janora is just like going. It's like okay, you have to roll persuasion against uh, Wan Chitang, <laughs> and it's just like all right. Well, actually, I want to tell him about the radio and the truth of the radio. Uh, okay, roll with advantage. <laughs> Right, <laughs> I have I have modern knowledge. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, so we cut back to Iro and Cora. Um, Iro is playing pie show with this like giant, like cabbage spirit almost. I don't know if it's like a cabbage or like a plant. I don't know what it is, but it's just this very silly, big looking spirit. And <laughs> it was definitely not the radish spirit. <laughs> yes. Oh my god. Um, and this is when Iroh explains how exactly he got into the spirit world. Um, when Cora asks him how long he's been here, he says for a long time. And that uh, he left his body behind to go there. Um, so, it, again, it, it kind of it's interesting that you kind of bring up this uh, comparison to Obi-Wan. It does feel very similar to kind of like the Force Ghost type of uh, thing where it's just you kind of get to that point but it, especially in the case of Iroh we know that previously he had gone into the spirit world uh, when he was younger as Zhao kind of notes to him in uh, the original series and it makes sense that he would find his way there towards the end of his life and then Cora begins to get upset about not finding Janora, has a little bit of a toddler tenter, uh, temper tantrum. And we see that the spirits are adversely affected. And this is when Iroh explains that in the spirit world, your emotions become your reality. And he has this wonderful quote that even in the material world, if you look for light, you will often find it. But if you look for the dark, that is all you will ever see. And as Cora kind of calms herself and looks for that light, the kind of dark clouds that literally appeared overhead and the effect that it has on the spirits begins to fade. And it's interesting that we kind of see this. Um, and we'll kind of dive into this with our discussion. Uh, but to kind of close that this section out... Iroh suggests to her, you know, sometimes the best way to solve your own problems is to help someone else. And he suggests that Korra helps the dragon bird and return it home. Um, some points of discussion. Again, just this return of Iroh. We only get him for such a short amount of time here. But he drops just two incredibly amazing philosophical quotes, which is just like no surprise whatsoever. Because that is just what Iroh does best. <laughs> right over a cup of tea yes uh Nothing could be more appropriate <laughs> and of course we get through this new lore and understanding of the spirit world kind of just a little bit more context that we had previously 
uh, known from the last series. And of course, this idea of Korra's emotions affecting the, the spirits and how, honestly, as I was watching this, the new takeaway that I had is that it's not too dissimilar to Vatu's presence Mm-hmm. when we saw him arrive in beginnings in the way that the spirits change, the impact that they go from these regular spirits to these darker spirits. Um, I, I don't know. Some of your thoughts on that? Um, well, yeah, I, I mean, I completely agree. I noticed that as well. And I think kind of the correlation that they're drawing um, is that, like, you know, Vatu is darkness personified really and um and so his his presence just kind of emanates this miasma of you know what one would assume would be dark emotions anger sadness uh loneliness loss stuff like that um and then we kind of see that demonstrated when Korra starts going through these emotions and her uh, experience of these emotions in the spirit world then has the same effect as Vatu which makes perfect sense to me really because I mean like I said Vatu is darkness personified and these spirits are sensitive to emotional energy and so the fact that they react the same way to Korra being sad and scared and lonely as Vatu being there is is a really interesting correlation I think absolutely no I think that that's a great point and it's it really is just this uh it's a per- interesting perspective to show how truly avatar uh, the avatar is connected to you know, Rava and in in a sense, in a way connected with Vatu because it is this, this other half uh, of this kind of delicate balance with everything. And yeah. it's, uh, it's interesting because I think it's very much in the same way we saw when, you know, the effect that Rava had when she passed over and very much that is, you know, who the avatar is, but it's, it's this light spirit mixed up with, human emotions which you know as we know from Korra and especially as toddler Korra goes all over the place um and I I do love that they kind of gave us that I love this idea that the impact of uh your emotions affecting your reality uh makes on the spirit world I love how it changes the very fabric of space around Korra um whether that's in the woods or outside in this tea party with the mountain. There's a lot that's really interesting in the way that they kind of establish that. And it gives us a lot to be able to understand more about the spirit world. Yeah. And I also think it's interesting that like, this is the first time that we've seen this because uh, I mean, like we were talking about earlier when with Aang, when he went into the spirit world, he was always very prepared and, you know, he used his airbender training to enter this kind of Zen mind state. And so when he went into the spirit world, for the most part, he was very neutral and, you know, careful to control himself. Um, and so his emotions didn't start bleeding over and affecting, you know, the spirits themselves and, and the world around him when he was there. Whereas, you know, 
Korra's not so great at being Zen, as we know, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. and so she, her her very presence has a much more profound effect on the spirits. Definitely, it, you know, and I think it's also just this, I, and I, and I think it's also part of why and why I thought it was very interesting that Tenzin is so genuinely concerned about Janora, but he does not have that same concern about Korra which is interesting because it's this idea of like he should know based on from what he's learned that if anything Janora is going to be more well equipped for this than Korra is I I and I think it's this nest I think it might just be this inherent um assumption that because the avatar is the avatar that they're eventually going to just be able to kind of fall into step with it, which, mm-hmm. you know, Korra eventually does, but you know, without Iroh, which you've gotten to that point, that's the real question. And yeah. it, it's this idea that, you know, again, the avatar has this uncanny ability to be able to um, kind of learn these things more rapidly, whether it's bending or other things that are tied into the inherent, abilities and character of being the avatar um Mm -hmm. but again i i would like to say no (laughs) Uh, based on you know what we know of Korra and how she behaves and her mindset and the very fact that when she entered the spirit world she kind of morphed everything around her to portray her own you know feelings of helplessness and inadequacy like i i believe that that's why she you know transformed into baby cora because she just she felt like she couldn't do anything she was a a young child again and powerless and alone um and so i would like to say that no she probably wouldn't have gotten to that point without iroh because you know she was so completely absorbed in this belief that she has no power over this place and no no way to affect her current status but plot armor she probably would have (laughs) (laughs) yeah no i i think you you really hit the nail on the head with that it it really is this idea that um cora changes her own form to really reshape into that reality of where she feels. Because again, as we've discussed previously, so much of Korra's identity has been established of her connection to bending. So much of the theme of the first season of Korra is all about this fear that she has of losing her bending. What happens, how she is ties her own intrinsic worth um, and sense of self to bending. And, you know, just because at the end of the season, she gets it back. Doesn't mean that that trauma isn't still there. Mm-hmm. And I think that if anything, you know, she tries to bend at these meerkats. She can't, she is thrown into this vortex and she ends up in this, these woods. She's a lost Janora. I mean, it, it is definitely the sense of helplessness because she doesn't have what she believes makes her strong. And I think it's so important that we get Iroh in this moment to be able to show her that she has so much of that power inside of her that isn't just bending. And there is no better 
person character guide to be able to show that than I think Iroh, which I think is just why it's so brilliant that they brought him back and it does not feel like it is a cheapened experience because sometimes when you have these like sequel series or a sequel movie and they bring back like a beloved character sometimes it's great and sometimes it can feel heavy-handed or it can feel like it is pandering too much to the fans but I think that in this case it is absolutely necessary and makes so much sense that Iroh would be this figure to be able to help the avatar in this moment because I think that that was who he truly became in his old age and it makes sense that he would go on to be the spirit who would be this guide because that is so much of what he learned to do and what he was so good at you know the tea spirit yes oh (laughs) i love it (laughs) so getting into the final act of this episode we see that Janora back at the library finds out more about Harvonic Convergence. Uh, she kind of, we get a little bit of a lore dump in terms of like how all of this works in terms of the reality of the world being shaped, uh, you know, by Harmonic Convergence, the power of the two spirit portals being open, giving Vatu the strength to be able to break free from his prison and to be able to, cast the world in darkness again which i you know is interesting but i also was like okay i feel like we already know this like i think it was kind of like adding a little bit more to this uh you know but it from what cora shared in her own experience with Juan, i feel like we kind of could infer this Mm -hmm. and part of me almost wished that we got a little bit more hidden knowledge or knowledge that like maybe Janora was on the precipice of learning before she was interrupted with this then maybe there was like okay well I learned this much but you know I didn't get to this next page or something like that that I feel like it could have added a little bit more of uh kind of this dramatic tension with what we don't know or maybe Janora does read something and we have something that we as the audience don't know but she does you know mm-hmm. yeah i i agree with that it was definitely i don't know a little bit underwhelming i think as you know this this gem of hidden knowledge that janora risked her life to find in wan shi tong's library like i was just like well yeah what else <laughs> yeah it, it wasn't i don't think it was nearly as impactful as it maybe should have been and i mean if we compare it to uh to the experience of ang and the gang going into wan chi tong's library in the original series i mean they are going there they are risking their lives because they need to find a way to be able to defeat the fire nation Mm -hmm. they you know are able to convince wan chi tong they find their way into this planetarium style room They find out about the Day of Black Sun. They get this incredibly valuable information, but then they realize that they have to get out. And, you know, now it's like, it's not only just this idea of like, okay, you know, we got this information, we're good to go. It's like, no, we we have to get out now because Wan Shitang 
thinks we're taking what we shouldn't be taking. And I think that you're absolutely right. It is a little underwhelming because, again, it's this idea that plot comes before this moment to breathe. Plot comes before emotion. Because the whole reason why, if we look at the grand scheme of things, the reason Janora came here was not necessarily to learn this information because it's kind of what we already knew. It was to be captured by Va- or by Unalak so that she could become, become this pawn in his like greater scheme. And again, you know, Wan Chi Tong is helping Unalak, which, eh, you know, could we have maybe a little bit more of this? Okay, you know, besides him just saying, well, he has been a great friend to the spirits. Why don't we get this moment where Jinora is just like, you know he's helping Vatu, right? Like the spirit of darkness who is this embodiment of evil. And then, it, you know, maybe have this like back and forth, like a debate moment where maybe yeah. that like Jinora has, like she can kind of like stay there and puts Wan Chi Tong in the midst of this. And suddenly it becomes like a debate of morals. I, I would much rather see this moment where, you know, she's trying to convince him. Unalak is instead having to use force against like Wan Chi Tong and having to kind of do that or maybe trying to preserve that good faith in Mm -hmm. a different way to be able to use that it it, you know sets up like a lot more but again it's just this very quick hey I told Unalak you were here because you know he's been helpful to the spirits and then Unalak just takes her and it's done and over with before we can kind of even go any farther and again the reason that Janori gets captured is because Unalak's presence, very much like with Vatu, negatively affects the spirits. Very much like that. I I do wish very much so that Wan Chi Tong had been a bit more of like a neutral character. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And like not just like, oh yeah, I'm best pals with Unalak. He's a cool dude. But Maybe not even like having as active as a hand in that whole meeting and kidnapping of Janora. Like, just, you know, maybe they like see each other in passing and, you know, they both freak out a little bit and like be like, why did you tell me that they were here, Wanchi Tong, you useless owl? And. Mm. Also, how did like, he tell him that you they didn't were there? Ask. <laughs> like, what was the form of communication that, like, Wan Chitong was able to, like, inform Unalak of? You know? And, like, how did Unalak get there so quickly? <laughs> well, <laughs> but he, again, he left Janora to her own devices once. Mm, that once is true. Yeah. Taught him how the thing was. So I assume that at that point he went and found Unalak and was like, hey, there's this girl here. You should come check it out. <laughs> yeah. True. But. But yeah, I I don't know. I feel like it would have been a much more compelling scene because like that made it feel like Wan Chi Tong was legit a bad guy. Like, yes, he's absolutely. working with Unalak. He's evil. He wants the Avatar to fail. But I don't feel like that's a fitting description of the Keeper of Knowledge. You know, like mm. he should be not taking this active role and just kind of sitting back and watching things happen so that he can gather knowledge and see what happens without his direct interference exactly yes and and like because when we saw in the original series he only got involved because he believed 
that he was being taken advantage of. Mm -hmm. And after he had been taken advantage of by Zhao, that was why he originally was like, you know, distrustful of humans, which is why it's so strange that like he is immediately so trusting of Unalak. And the question is, is what truly has Unalak done to benefit the spirits? Like, you know, we don't really have that perspective. Like, what yeah. did Unalak do? And and I think that it's also why Unalak is, I think, becomes, he starts off as a potentially strong, well-written villain. But then as the season continues, we're just losing more of him. Whereas, mm. you know, as a Mon in the first season, we just learn more and more about him. He becomes yeah. more complex. Whereas I think Unalak starts off with this complexity and then is relegated to a much more simplistic villainous archetype. That oh, for is, sure. Yeah. I was I was a little disappointed to be seeing that because like I know you had such high hopes too because I remember from our earlier discussion you were excited to see his trajectory and the way that he was written kind of in the beginning with that yeah because he was it was very much kind of like you know the the wrong things for the right reasons type motivation which is a great villain motivation because it's not so easy to just say dude you're a bad guy cut it out like you know, he was trying to help the water tribe. He was trying to unite the people into a strong front. He wasn't doing it the best way, you know. <laughs> could have could have gone about it differently. But he he really had what seemed to be at the time good intentions and a good solid um, desire to actually help his people. But by this point, I mean, like I said, he's just devolved into a much more simplistic, uh, you know, I want to take over the world because I'm the best one that can lead it type yeah. villain. Mm-hmm. Which, yeah, compared to Amon or, I mean, even like Azula, it's just, it's so flat. <laughs> yes, I, exactly. And again, I think it comes from not having more time with him. Because again, we you know so much of why we got this complexity um, from Amon or complexity from Azula it is because we see these scenes that are outside of the main characters with just them. We see Amon, you know, kind of having this relationship with his lieutenant become a little bit more tense as Amon's kind of actions become a little bit more desperate or that Amon is, you know, doing this whole thing where he is capturing his brother Tarlock and everything that kind of uh, falls from there. We, we see this desperation arise out of the influence and impact of the avatar. But I feel like we see so, we see so little of what Unalak has done and we're missing context that and especially like with Amon like we get his whole backstory and Mm -hmm. like how honestly tragic that was yes whereas with Unalak it's like I'm jealous of my big brother okay (laughs) yeah exactly and they kind of just that's where it's at and and I think it's again it's this um it is the pro and con of having beginnings smack dab in the middle of the season is that in it gives us this wonderful, amazing lore and insight into the first Avatar. 
but it's also two whole episodes that we are away from the main story. And because of that, everything else has to be like kicked into hyperdrive in order to fulfill the needs of the plot for the end of this season. And as I said in our beginnings discussion, I just think that this season and the, the story that they were trying to tell would have benefited so much from having a full season like we did in Avatar The Last Airbender, more so than any other season in Korra. Because I, I think in the other seasons of Korra, they really do a good job of using that kind of time constraint to be able to still keep everything very tight in terms of storytelling, in terms of villain motivation. Um, they do a really good job of it, but I think they're just kind of navigating murkier waters here yeah. in uh, book two. There's there's a lot of exposition mm-hmm. that they kind of have to shoehorn in. Yes. And like, I get it, because you're, I mean, you're trying to deal with this whole new concept that the entirety of the show in The Last Airbender only briefly brushed up against like didn't even delve into but now that you have this whole new platform and like you have this particular story that you want to tell you have to introduce all these new concepts and ideas and uh knowledge to the audience while still trying to balance it with a story and like it's i get it it's not easy to do but i definitely feel like the balance was a bit off <laughs> between actual, you know, useful story development and just exposition pieces. Yeah, definitely. So as we kind of see in the last parts of this, um, we first see uh, the final scenes with Iroh and Korra as Iroh bids Korra farewell with one final piece of advice, um, telling her that she can let out that light and that sometimes Things that seem scary in the dark uh, aren't nearly as much when you shine a little light on them, which I think is just such a beautiful sentiment. I really like this, and I think that is very much coming from Iroh's own experience. Um, you know, a, a, again, I think it's this—it's a—it's essentially what we saw from Zuko. Zuko started off as this like villain at the beginning of book one, but as soon as you kind of shine a little light on him you start to see that there's a little bit more to him and that that's where it kind of can lead to a much more complex uh, dynamic character or situation that isn't as nearly as it first appears. Um, so again, we kind of get this like wild kind of perspective thing where as Cora kind of bids Iroh farewell, um, you know, she suddenly sees him, turns, look at the mountain, looks back and suddenly like all this distance has been uh, completely uh, put between both of them. And she sends the, a mountain is confronted by three evil looking spirits, but then she takes that lesson to heart. She lets that light out and these evil looking spirits become sweet doggos uh, who are there to help her. <laughs> With hats and big drooly tongue. <laughs> so they lead her up to the mountain to the dragon bird nest. Um, and this is where Cora brings this dragon bird. Uh, she sets it down with three others and they suddenly combine and become a big golden dragon bird as this kind of spins around and not only that but Cora also becomes her old self again 
And I just thought it was like a very cool sentiment to kind of like show that she needed to be able to learn this lesson, to be able to kind of move on through this, to be able to uh, undergo this transformation. I think that this is an example of really strong uh, writing in such a short amount of time because we go from Cora being turned into little Cora, having this moment of fear, having Iroh be able to kind of give her this advice, her internalizing it, struggling with it, but then eventually being able to show it. I think it felt very well earned and it felt like when she got to that point, it's like, okay, great. That was a wonderful lesson learned. And I think it is this great example of that condensed storytelling working incredibly well why Mm -hmm. book two has these beautiful moments like this but it has moments that are again as we said a little bit more exposition heavy and not as strong so i just thought it was very cool to note that this was a at least i thought a very strong moment yeah it it definitely was and a lot of that uh was paid off because you know they spent just a little bit of time earlier establishing the spirit world as being so intrinsically linked to emotions and perception Mm -hmm. and you know your your energy and so from that point on they can use it as a really strong narrative device without any you know setup or any additional exposition and this scene is a perfect example of that because since we've already had all of that experience we understand what's going on you know as we see the dragon birds form into their final form and (laughs) you know Korra becomes herself again and she's you know older and experienced and capable again it's like we understand just even from seeing that brief little clip the change that's gone on in her mind and and how she's thinking and what she's understanding now. Definitely. So Korra then, with the help of the dragon bird, uh, makes her way to the Tree of Time. And as you uh, so beautifully dubbed it earlier, this spiritual UFC arena. (laughs) I mean, that's what it is. I love it so much. Uh, and we see uh, as Cora goes to approach the portal to close it, again, we kind of get this like crazy wild distance perspective shift as she's like by the portal one moment and then suddenly she's in front of the tree of time another as Vatu calls out to her and says that, uh, you know, might might want to wait a little bit here. And we find out that Unalak is holding Janora captive. And in a classic big bad villain kind of moment, leaves Korra with a choice. Open the other portal or you lose Janora's soul forever. Of course, Korra is going to yield in this moment. Um, And she, of course, opens the other portal. And as the power kind of surges through, lo and behold, in another classic villain moment, betrays that deal um, and begins to take Korra down. Of course, Unalak, having passed through the portal, has his bending and uh, begins to try and take Korra's own soul away. But the dragon bird comes in, swats Unalak with the tail, and scoops Korra to safety um, as they fly off. But alas, Janora has been taken away by Furryfoot off into the distance as well. And as Korra wakes up, we see an excited Tenzin 
who wants to know more. But Korra, with tears in her eyes, looks at Tenzin as he looks over at Jinora, asking why she isn't there. And I love this final scene because I think it is just so good to have this, like, you know, with Korra not saying anything at first, and we just see this, like, horror and just sadness in her eyes as she sees Tenzin excitedly approach her and Tenzin just calling out and knowing what happened to Jinora. So what what did you think of these kind of like final scenes here with uh, Korra's uh, kind of deal with Vatu and then uh, her waking up to Tenzin? Um, I, well, I, I liked it and I didn't. Because, <laughs> uh, I mean, like we were talking about earlier, it's kind of puts the nail in the coffin of Unalak becoming the one-dimensional, mm-hmm. predictable, flat villain that he's turning into. Um, so it was, it was kind of disappointing and predictable. Um, and it, like you're saying, it's, it's kind of the classic villain moment made me think of the uh, probably the most meta example of that I've ever seen was in the uh, Fox Studios Spider-Man the first one with Green Goblin when he's standing on the bridge and he's holding holding Mary Jane over one side and the cable car full of kids and he actually gives a little speech about you know the classic villain's choice do you (laughs) save the girl or do you save the helpless kids in the tram like every every hero tries to be strong and then every villain comes along and forces a choice yep this is yours what you gotta choose parker and he drops them same thing happened yes but it was i mean it's like on the one hand i was kind of still hoping that Unalak had a bit of that you know, moral grayness still, and, you know, maybe he'll actually honor his word and let Janora go, but uh, he didn't. And yeah. <laughs> I was like, okay. Well, it, it would have been really interesting to see the effect that Vatu has had on him, because I think that that's what really this was missing, is that you have maybe a moment where, like, you know, Korra appeals to him, is like, look, as family, please, can you just, like, do this and let her pass? And we see Unalak maybe try to do that, but then the influence of Vatu mm-hmm. is far too much for him to even resist. You know, instead seeing the struggle for him to be able to resist Vatu's influence and control, trying to keep his humanity, but he can't against this overwhelming darkness. It's like a light switch was turned on and he is just like, nope, all right, this is what I'm doing. This is what we're doing yeah. here. And it's just like, there's no... There is, like you said, no grayness to it. It is just simply this black and white, uh, you know, difference now. And it's 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 definitely it is definitely disappointing, uh, especially when we know all of the different ways um, that Mike and Brian have done villains over the course of their two series. Yeah, I I agree with you. I definitely would have loved to see, you know, maybe some interaction between. Vatu and Unalak like you know maybe he's he's been through the spirit portal and he's spoken to him on more than one occasion you know maybe 
Vatu was offering him something that he desperately needed or wanted. And so he's kind of being, you know, coerced to do this sort of thing. And and then when, when he's here faced with the choice of, you know, letting Jinora go or not, to, to see him actually really struggle with that, but then, you know, maybe like one of Vatu's like tentacles reaches out and yeah. mentally... Or maybe the, like, the spirits like affect him in some way, or yeah, like you know something like that. Just yeah, it, something like that would have been way more interesting, I think, than just I want to take over the world, and this is the weapon I'm going to do to use it, and nothing's going to stop me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. Um, and then any uh, any final thoughts that you might have on um, this uh, kind of final scene where Cora wakes up as uh, Tenzin kind of approaches here? Um, I, I liked it. It was, it was good. Um, the, the emotional weight that they were able to put into just even just that silence when, when he asks Coralie, you know, like what happened? Why is she here? And she just doesn't respond. Mm. Like uh, so much of that was in, like the the sound design with the music and and the the sound effects and but as well as the uh, art which mm. is you know always really good but in scenes like this I feel like they they really shine because you could just see how tormented and horrific Cora feels because she couldn't get Janora back like it's so plainly evident in her face it was mm. amazing mm-hmm. yep and you know it, it's such a beautiful like uh dissonance between her horror and Tenzin's excitement because he mm-hmm. just wants to know like oh what was it like how'd everything go and like is just assuming you know trying to be positive and trying to you know think that it's going to be okay but instead, his worst fears were his worst fears were confirmed. Um, yeah. So, uh, yeah, and I mean, I think we kind of got into you know our last kind of discussion points of the Iroh's philosophy towards Korra, Unalak having his make a deal villain moment. Uh, <laughs> but I, I kind of want to just get uh, as this episode concludes. Uh, any overall thoughts uh, on this episode and uh, kind of what we were shown um, and. Uh, any new insights uh, just from having this discussion? Um, well, Iro's back, so that's always a great thing. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, no. And overall, I th- I thought it was a really really interesting episode. Um, it added a lot, explained a lot to the audience about the spirits and the spirit world uh, that we hadn't had a chance to delve into before. Um, and I think that's that's one of the maybe more compound differences between Korra and The Last Airbender uh, is because there is a lot in Korra that deals with, you know, like her spirituality and what it means to be the Avatar. Whereas like in The Last Airbender, it was, it was pretty much all about the Fire Nation and, you know, we have to stop the Fire Nation and there's this ever-present looming threat of conquest and genocide that the fire nation itself represented at that time and so everything that they did was focused on that Mm -hmm. whereas 
uh, Korra has a much more introspective sort of theme, I feel like, in overall. Um, and so it's it's interesting to see that play out as she's experiencing the spirit world for the first time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. All right. Well, guys, um, that is uh, that is going to wrap it up for our discussion today. And and just as a final uh, final note too. So uh, unfortunately, but also fortunately, Kevin was not able to join us tonight because we wanted to wish him and his wife a big congratulations. They uh, the birth of their daughter. Uh, we got this super adorable little picture because as we were planning earlier on in the day, we're like, hey, you know, discussions on for tonight. He's like, well, we'll see how things go. I don't know. And then as I uh, woke up uh, today uh, before we started recording, I wake up to see uh, he's like, well, something happened on the way and uh, looks like I won't be able to make it. Um, so big congratulations uh, to Kevin. Uh, he is going to kind of be taking a break uh, from the podcast while he is doing his dad thing, understandably, of course. But we yeah. just want to wish him and his wife the best and well wishes and congratulations to them. And the baby looks just like him, the poor I, thing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Love you, Kevin. <laughs> Oh my God. Wow. Uh, well, guys, thank you so much for tuning in again. Uh, this uh, just been a wonderful discussion. Appreciate uh, the support as always. Um, and a big shout out. Thank you to you, Daniel, for uh, joining me for this discussion. It was great to uh, great to get to uh, analyze this and discuss this with you today. Yeah, always a pleasure. <laughs> so, guys, remember you can find us in all of those good social medias. Uh, we are going to be on Instagram and, and Facebook at Legend of Portalcast, on Twitter at Portalcast Pod. You can find more on our website at legendofportalcast.com. And remember, you can always uh, find us on iTunes on Spotify, on Stitcher, or any of your podcast listening programs. Um, And we are also going to be doing our monthly live stream at the end of this month. uh, We are going to be doing it on Saturday. Uh, It's going to technically be on, it's going to be in May, but it's going to kind of be the last part of April, I guess. Uh, But it's going to be on Saturday, May 1st. Uh, We are going to be doing our monthly, or not May 1st, sorry, Sunday, uh, May 2nd, we're going to be doing our monthly live stream. So be sure to tune in for that. Um, and if you want a hand in deciding what we're going to talk about, join us on our Discord. You can find the link in our show notes to learn more about that. Um, but guys, thank you again for the support. Take care of yourselves. Drink lots of water. Listen to the words of Uncle Iroh for they are wise, potent, and full of joy, as is every cup of tea. But guys, thank you so much. And until next time, let us tea.